Well, good morning. Good morning. Elvis said this already, but uh, I want to say it again. You know, we, we say this all the time. The church is not a building, right? It's you. It's you. It's us. We're the church. And so whether we meet here or we meet there, the fact that uh, makes us a church is the fact that we meet, the fact that we gather. And so I'm excited to be with you this morning in a great location. We're so grateful for Gower Springs, our friends at Gower Springs that allowed us to meet here. We will be here again in two weeks when we gather in our large gathering. And we may be here more than that. Um, they're trying to fix our air conditioner in our sanctuary. And uh, it's going to be a bigger job than they kind of estimated. So we're just kind of at their mercy. Uh, or we're in the, in the heat. And I think it feels pretty good in here. That, so... <laughs> We'll be, uh, we'll be in here for a little while, maybe, Lord willing. Um, I want to just say thanks for your flexibility, because I know this is not as easy for those of you that live across the river and, and further away. This is even that much further to come, uh, but I'm so grateful for your willingness to be here and to gather together. We've got a lot of people that are not with us today, and uh, we're working on purchasing some more chairs that we can even use in the future. So we'll, we'll get some more chairs in here, and hopefully we can get all our people in here uh, before long. So just glad you're here. Also just one on a personal note. I want to say a very sincere thank you for your prayers for my family. Many of you know this has been a really hard last 10 days or more, uh, really almost a month now, that Lori's father had some strokes, put him in the hospital in New Orleans, and uh, ultimately um, he passed away about 10 or 11 days ago. And so this past week we have been in, in Spring Hill, Louisiana with her family and it has been a difficult time but it's been a beautiful time and I think the thing that's been most beautiful about the time that we've had together is just the testimony of Philip Carroll's life has been it's astounding uh, there, I was trying to think of this quote by Eugene Peterson but Eugene Peterson has this quote that says something I'm going to get it wrong but it's something like you won't believe the impact when faithful service in the same direction like you can't it's an amazing impact and that's exactly what we see in Philip's life he just he planted his life and his family and his ministry in Spring Hill Louisiana for 53 years and the ripple effect of that literally goes around the world we've heard from countless people who said he led me to Jesus he counseled my kids he taught my kids in school he uh, it's just been it's been amazing from teaching the Bible in school in the 70s to being a youth pastor literally a month ago who was ready to take his kids to camp at 77. He was an amazing man and um, our family just wants to say thank you that we love you and appreciate your prayers and your support in this time. I also want to just say a big thank you to our team. Uh, we have a lot of team um, but to get us into this building Daryl and Mindy have led the charge and there's a lot of volunteers uh, normal volunteers that are serving all the time anyway but we just we couldn't do that without people serving and being willing to dig a little deeper. I want to give them a hand for their hard work. Us so we love you guys. We appreciate you, and uh, we will continue to be flexible. What's your what's your saying about flexibility, Brother Jerry? Blessed. Yes, sir. That's it. I knew I was missing a big part of that. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall never be bent out of shape. So let us. Uh, let us try to live up to that axiom, Brother Jerry's, and be flexible over the next couple of months if we can, okay? All right, so even though we're in a different location, feels a little different, looks a little different, 
we're still in the same gospel of Mark. And we're still learning all the things that God wants us to learn from his word in this, in this wonderful book. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to Mark chapter 11. I want to give you a little uh, background context from chapter 11. When you get to chapter 11 in Mark, you begin to turn the corner for Jesus in his Passion Week. You might remember a couple of weeks ago we saw Jesus coming into this little town at the top of the Mount of Olives called Bethany and Bethphage, and, and he, uh, he sent some disciples on to get, to get a colt of a donkey. And he, he tells them, you know, we'll bring it back. And uh, then they begin to make their way down the, the Mount of Olives. Of course, we celebrate it usually as Palm Sunday, but a lot of theologians believe it actually happened on Monday. So this is Monday of Passion Week, okay? So just kind of go with me here for a second. So on Monday, we see Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives in, in, uh, into Jerusalem. He's now allowing people to worship him as Messiah, which he hasn't done that often uh, in the Gospel of Mark or in the Gospels. He's, he's wanted this to be on his time, and this is now his time to be celebrated and worshiped as Messiah, but it's... It's a little bittersweet, right? Because he's not really worshipped as Messiah. We talked about this sort of being a paradox. It looks like worship. It sounds like worship. People are excited. People are, are singing and celebrating. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it seems amazing. And yet we see Jesus going down the mountain and he begins to weep. Because he knows that their hearts are fickle. He knows that their hearts aren't really worshiping him as Messiah. They're worshiping him as military leader. He's going to overthrow Rome, but not as spiritual leader who's going to forgive them of their sin. And that's the reason he came. And he says, you know, he's saddened. He says, you didn't recognize your visitation. You didn't know what made for peace. He's not talking about peace between Rome and, and Israel. He's talking about true spiritual peace. And it shows the character and heart of our God. When he weeps over Jerusalem, he's riding in. He can see the city walls. I mean, from that vantage point, as I showed you in that picture, you can see all of the old city of Jerusalem coming down that mountain. And Jesus is riding down on this colt of a donkey, weeping because they have not known him. So he's coming down. And as he's coming down, people are rushing out of the gates uh, of Israel out of the gates of Jerusalem, out of the gates of the old city, to meet him. Why? Because he raised somebody from the dead. And the text tells us they want to see Jesus, and they want to see Lazarus. Some people estimate that it's 100,000 people rushing up this little windy road up to this mountain, not even a mile away. And they meet him, and, and it takes him all day to get through the crowd. And by the time he gets to the temple, it's dark. So he looks around for a bit and goes back to Bethany where he stays. Right? So then we come to last Sunday's study, and we see that uh, that's the next day in the Passion Week. It's Tuesday. And so Jesus leaves Bethany, and he's starting to go into Jerusalem. And it's a really interesting story, because Jesus is walking out of Bethany, and he's, the text tells us he's hungry or a little hangry in the moment, because he sees a fig tree, right? He goes over to the fig tree, and it's full of leaves, which in essence means you ought to be full of fruit. If you're showing that you have leaves, you ought to show that you have fruit. But it's just leaves, and he gets angry at the fig tree. And so he curses the fig tree. Now listen, it's nothing about the fig tree. It's not that Jesus is now mad at the fig tree, and it's just something about fig trees. No, Jesus is teaching a lesson. He's teaching a lesson to his disciples in that moment 
that when he gets to the temple, he's going to make even clearer. Which is, don't show that you have fruit and not have fruit. So he, he curses the fig tree. It, the next morning it withers. He gets to the temple that day and he cleans out, cleanses the temple, drives people out, thieves, robbers, says, this is my father's house. It should be a house of prayer for the nations. It shows his, his heart for all the nations. And the temple should have been a place, right, where, where people from all over the world can come and know this God and be in relationship with this God. But they, they didn't want that. They had different courts for different people segregating. And so Jesus is not happy. And in essence, he's saying, you've got this beautiful temple. You've got this beautiful place. And you've got these leaders walking around in these fancy robes and their leaves. Then you look at these people and you go, oh, that guy must be holy. He must be religious. He must have, he must have some sort of a uh, sense of spirituality about him. He must know things of God. But guess what? He didn't know God at all. They didn't know God at all. They were leaves with no fruit. They had no fruit in their lives. And so Jesus is trying to teach this lesson on Tuesday. At the end of the day, another one of the Gospels tells us that they uh, he, he teaches. So at the end of the day, he cleans out the temple, pushes out the, the robbers. By the way, this is a 35-acre if in your mind you can just, I mean, when I think about it, I think about a room like this, right? Jesus is getting robbers out, but no. Just imagine Jesus running from acre to acre, from, from vendor to vendor. He caused a major spectacle. A major spectacle. Lots of drama. And you can just feel this pulsating heat and hatred towards Jesus as he pulls power from the leaders of Judaism to himself. So that's Tuesday. He ends the day teaching. And you can just sense the, the, the leaders angry that Jesus is in their house, so to speak. <laughs> really, it's his house. But Jesus is in their uh, territory. And he's teaching. Who, who is Jesus that he would teach? Where we're credentialed, where we're recognized as leaders. Who is this man think that he is? And so it brings us to Wednesday. And that's what we're going to study today. Wednesday of Passion Week. Uh, and Jesus is going to see that as he's been back in Bethany, staying in Bethany, comes back down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. But this time, he's got a large crowd of leaders and they're waiting on him. I was walking our, our, our pop. He, uh, he would walk. He was such an incredible man. He would walk three miles a day. Run. I'm sorry, excuse me. I walked three miles. He ran it. But he would run three miles a day at 77. And... Um, and I was on the path. I, I walked it three times this past week. And, and there's some areas where, plus we're in the country, you know, I'm kind of thinking about water moccasins and copperheads and security cat, basically. And uh, I'm going by areas where the grass is growing over, and I'm kind of like giving a wide berth, you know, because I'm just thinking about snakes lying in wait. And when I thought about that, I couldn't help but think about these elders and these scribes and these leaders of Judaism just waiting in here. I know he's coming. And as Jesus comes back into the old city, they're just waiting to pounce. In fact, in the book of Luke, the gospel tells us that they're ready to confront Jesus. But the Greek word is the same word for attack. Not just a, a light confrontation. They're ready to attack Jesus. And we're going to see they're going to claim. They're going to ask this question. Who do you think you are? By what authority do you think you can do what you've done and what you're doing? So if you have your Bibles... Look with me in 
Mark chapter 11. We're going to read the rest of the chapter here, starting at verse 27. And it says, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you about what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Well, why did you not believe him? Uh, but shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. Mark gives us a little uh, tidbit of information. They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That's our text this morning. Let's pray and ask the Lord to open his word to us, can we? Father, God, we love you so much. We're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful that as a family we can gather, regardless of the house we gather in, big house, small house, our house, their house. Lord, thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to be here in this space with our family. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for interruptions in our lives. We don't like them. And I pray that today, Lord, you would remind us that sometimes interruptions are the way you love us, the way you draw us back to yourself. And so, God, I pray that as we study this interruption into the, uh, the religious system of Jerusalem, we would think about our own lives and what you want to speak to us and what you want to call us to. Lord, forgive us of our sin. Draw us to your word. Give us a hunger to know you more. Spirit of the living God, move in this little place and in our hearts so that we might know you more, God. I pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, lead us to all truth, that I would stay out of your way, God, that you would Help me to decrease in this time, that you would increase in our hearts and our understanding of your truth and your word, and help us to love you with all that we are, not just our words, not just a little while on the Sunday, but with all that we are. May you be the Lord of our lives, and we give you this time in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So Jesus has had a very busy few days, right? Monday, Tuesday, now Wednesday, and I, I, you can literally feel the power being sucked out of Jerusalem up the mountain to Jesus. Some theologians, like I said, believe that there's 100,000 people that have moved out of the city. There could have been as many as 2 million people around Jerusalem. And thousands, tens of thousands at least, moving out of the temple. Right? They're there for Passover. They're there to do their normal Passover activities moving out of uh, this, this area, up the mountain towards Bethany. Why? To see Jesus and to see Lazarus. Now you just imagine, if you heard somebody was raised from the dead, you'd want to check that out, right? And that's what they're doing. And so this is what has happened. Jesus has done this. He's now come down the mountain. And then he shows incredible strength. So he's been worshipped as Messiah. Shows incredible strength and resolve and passion and authority as he cleanses the temple. Nobody arrests him. Nobody does anything. <laughs> he does what he needs to do in his father's house. So he's showing this strength. 
He's, he's literally ushering out the corruption in this religious system. And you can see the sweat beads uh, of fear, struggle, stress coming down the, the leaders. They're going, yeah, we're, they're not the only ones corrupt. And maybe we're next. And he's gaining all this power from all these people. What's going to happen? And so their hatred for Jesus is just growing and growing. Three things I want us to see this morning from this text. Number one, we're going to see that they question Jesus' authority. Who do you think you are? And really what they're trying to do is trap him. Okay? The second thing I want to see this morning is then Jesus turns tables on them. And he questions their authority by the very thing that happens. And he tests them. And then the third thing I want us to see is that sadly what they do is they begin to play politics. But Jesus has the trump card. Jesus turns tables on its head. Look with me in the text. They asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? What's funny is the issue of authority has been something that, that Jesus has talked about, that people have talked about all the way from the beginning of this gospel. Look with me in the chapter 1 of, of Mark. Chapter 1, verse 22. <coughs> This is, this is Jesus in the, the synagogue in Capernaum. I've been to this synagogue, or the ruins of this synagogue, and Jesus is standing here in this little fishing town. You can see the Sea of Galilee, right, out from the front porch. Jesus is standing there. He begins to teach, and he's blowing their minds. As he begins to teach, the text tells us, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. Watch this. And not as the scribes. I love that. Right? Jesus has authority, but we're not used to that. The scribes didn't have authority. Jesus has authority. That's just in his teaching. Well, then Jesus does something that blows their minds even further. He casts demon out of this man, right? And after he does this, Mark 1, 27, a few verses later, he says, And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. See, Jesus' authority isn't just about being a good teacher. It's just about speaking with confidence or an anointing. Jesus shows that that anointing and that confidence and that power, that authority. Part of the word that, that makes up the word authority in the Greek is dunamis in the Greek, which means like where we get the word dynamite. It's power. Jesus is speaking with dynamite power that they just, their minds are blown. Not only speaking with it, but showing the power of being over, having authority over spiritual beings, demonic beings. It's incredible. I love the story. We, we went through it in Mark 2, where these friends bring the crippled man to a home where Jesus is going to be teaching, remember? And they couldn't get in, couldn't get through the window, couldn't get through the door, and what do they do? They go to the roof, and they get him up there, and they've got him in a blanket or something, and they're ready to break it. They break through the roof. Peter's going, really? It's my roof. And they let him down through the roof. And Jesus has a little back and forth with a Pharisee who's, who's there. And Jesus asks this question, but he deals with his authority. Look what it says in Mark 2, verse 9. Jesus is looking at the Pharisee. He says, hey, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. What Jesus is saying is, first of all, neither thing can be done by anyone but God. 
Okay. Who can forgive sins? Can I forgive your sins? No. Who can forgive sins? Only God. Only God can forgive sins. Who can heal? Only God. So he's basically saying, which do you want me to do? For me to show you my authority as God. This is an important text where Jesus shows his deity. Rise, he says, which is, is uh, easier? Say your sins are forgiven or say that rise and take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has what? Authority on earth to forgive sins. So I could heal this man and you go, wow, he's a healer. But so that you know that I could also forgive his sins, I'm going to heal him so you can see and know that I'm God, right? I'm going to do something in his heart that you can't see. I'm going to forgive his sins. But so that you can see and know that I'm God, I'm going to give him healing uh, of his condition. And so Jesus heals him with the authority that God has given him. It says to him, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So here's Jesus. He's walking in the temple. These men are surrounding him, ready to confront or attack him. They're ready to question him and trap him because what they need Jesus to do is say, I'm God, or I can forgive sins, or I am Messiah. If they, if they can get Jesus to, to make some sort of a claim like that in the temple, they can arrest him. And then once they arrest him, they can kill him, right? They want him dead. Jesus has shown us many times, even in the story in the beginning of chapter 11, where he sees the future, remember? And he sees where the donkey is, and he sees what needs to happen. Jesus reads and knows their hearts. So Jesus is looking at these men, and he knows their intent is to trap him. He sees it. He knows it. He knows that they want to accuse him of blasphemy, which is a capital offense where they can murder him. So they hate him, and Jesus knows what's going on here. By the way, one theologian said there's about 71 men here. If, if all the elders, all the scribes, uh, and, and the others are there, the priests, if all of them are there, 71 men, that's about how many you're sitting here today. Right? So just imagine all these people against one man, and they all want to kill one man. And he can see their hearts, and he knows their intent. They hate him because of the power that they feel they are losing. It's, it's pouring out of them. They've been the leaders of Jerusalem. They've been the leaders in the temple, and people are leaving the temple to go see Jesus. They don't do anything as Jesus is running their extra side business <laughs> out of the temple and cleansing the temple. They're running, but they don't do anything. Jesus is showing power over them, and now they're ready to accuse him, hopefully trap him. But Jesus won't be trapped. And he instead, right in front of them, in their territory, he teaches the gospel. This is just insult to injury. This is just salt on this wound to these leaders. They're rapidly losing power. Jesus to them was a country bumpkin. He was a, a what you call a pseudo rabbi. You're not a real rabbi. You don't have our credentials. Who did you study under? But, you know, why do you think you can be here? You don't have a right. And so they question Jesus, and they forget that His authority truly is from the Father, and He's proven it with miracle after miracle and wisdom. So here's their chance to stop Him. And when they don't, their hatred only grows. So here's the second thing I want us to take a look at. Jesus now 
begins to turn the tables and he questions their authority with a test. Right? I love this. You, you can just sense Jesus is, I mean, he already knows. He already knows exactly what to say. He already knows what's going to happen. And he's full of confidence and they're trying to figure it out. 71 men, leaders, theological leaders of all of Judaism in the most powerful temple there is. Jesus says to them, verse 29, I'll ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And you just, I just have this picture in my mind where they just huddle together. What do we get? You know, they're, they're working it out. They're trying to figure it out. There's not an immediate answer. All these brilliant minds, all these leaders of the, of the Old Testament, they ought to know immediately what's going on. But here's the thing. They actually do know. I'm going to get back to that in just a minute. They actually do have an opinion. But it's not their opinion that they that they give. Now Jesus, as he does this, as he creates this test for them, this is not an uncommon rabbinical tradition. This would be a common sort of a, uh, a way to debate, if you will. You know, I'm, I'm not a fan, really, of politics. I don't like them. I know we have to have them. But I'm not a, I'm not a very political person. Um, but I, I don't like politics. And um, one of the phrases that we've seen in the last several years that has come out in our polit political cycle is quid pro quo, right? I, I've mentioned that phrase before. Well, Jesus, in this moment, does a quid pro quo, right? It, what that means is, I tell you what, I'll give you what you want. I'll answer your question, but first answer mine. That's what a quid pro quo is. And so Jesus does this in this moment. He says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from man? Now, Jesus wasn't saying how John baptized or the fact that he baptized. He's talking about the whole of John's ministry. When he says John's baptism, he's speaking of all of John's ministry. In other words, when John called people out of sin, the way he did Herod, right? When, when he called people to repentance, when he, when he preached about Jesus being the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, when he baptized people, all the whole of John's ministry is what Jesus is referring to. And so he challenges these guys. He gives them a test. Was John's baptism and his ministry, was it from heaven or was it from man? You just see these guys huddled up all these big egos, all these big uh, accoutrements of priestly gear and priestly robes, bumping these hats and with one another and trying to trying to figure it out. What are we going to say, right? And in this moment, as they're doing this, they're they're trying to get a sense of what are we going to say. And I love the, the idea that they're playing checkers while Jesus is playing chess, right? In fact, that's not even a good analogy. Jesus is so far beyond these men, it's not even funny. It, it, it can't even compare. And in doing so, in giving this question, in having them think the way they're thinking, he's showing them where the authority lies. Isn't he? Just, I mean, even in just, which is brilliant. Even in the exercise of them looking like a fool and them trying to figure it out. And then coming up and going, we don't know. Jesus is going, huh. Right? Without it even being spoken, Jesus is showing who's in charge, who the real authority is. Daniel Aiken says, 
in essence, Jesus was saying, if you, if you can't make a judgment about John's ministry based on his evidence, how in the world are you going to make a judgment about me based on my evidence, right? There's this comparison. Here's the third thing I want us to see this morning. That is that these men are playing politics over personal responsibility. Politics over personal responsibility, and Jesus plays the trump card. Verse 31. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. I just love that. All these brilliant theologians, and they go, We don't know. But Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus has literally made the collective brilliance of Judaism look stupid in their own temple. But what's interesting is that it's not the truth. It's what I hate about politics so very much. They didn't choose the truthful answer. They had an opinion about John's ministry, didn't they? They didn't believe it was from God. I think they believed it was from man. But they don't focus on politics. Instead, they consider the consequences of an answer instead of the convictions of their heart. I want us just to pause on that for a moment. They consider the consequences. What's going to happen if we choose heaven? What's going to happen if we choose men to us? I hate that about politics. It drives me nuts. What I see in our political system is the same thing. Too often we worry about image management. Too often we're worried about control and not enough about personal responsibility, owning mistakes, and accountability. What happened to those things? It saddens me. Instead, we have to answer like this. Well, what will happen? We'll let that be the answer. That's not the answer. That's manipulation, right? And so much of our political system still operates in that way, and it's been operating that way for 2,000 years. So they don't give a truthful answer. They have two considerations, right? Was John's ministry from heaven? Or was it from man? Because if it was from heaven, Jesus will say, why did you believe him? In other words, this is what's happening. We have to admit we were wrong. If we say it was from heaven, we've got to admit God, almighty, ordained, sanctioned, gave words to this prophet John, we were wrong. We have to own that responsibility. We have to understand. We have to humble ourselves. We have to own our junk. We have to hear his message of repentance and repent. They weren't willing to do that. So the other, what's the other option? Well, it's from man. Well, if we say it's from man, the truth is because, and, and Mark gives us this wonderful understanding and description, verse 32, they were afraid of the people for they all held. That's a pretty big statement. They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. You know what this tells me? I think it's so awesome. The people were actually concerned about God. The leaders were concerned about circumstances of what would happen, consequences. Not about God. The people believed he was a prophet. And so if they said he's from man, their fear was that the people would rise up and revolt against the leadership 
of Judaism. So what do we do? If we admit we're wrong, we'll lose control. And what happens is they're afraid of, number one, being seen as wrong, and number two, afraid of men. As I studied this and I thought about contextually, what does it mean for us? The sad reality, friends, is this. They were afraid of being seen as wrong. They were afraid of men, but they were not afraid of God. They weren't afraid of God. There was zero faith in this all-powerful, almighty God of the universe who holds it all together. Zero concern. We're worried about the consequences. We're not worried about God. Can I just tell you something this morning? If you don't have a fear of God, you cannot be saved. If you do not fear the holy, righteous God of the universe, you cannot know Him. You cannot be in relationship with Him. It is our fear of God that we see Him as holy and righteous, and we see us as broken and sinful. We see our need for God, and we see the mercy of the sacrifice of His Son that gives us salvation. But if you don't have a fear, a holy fear of God, you cannot know Him, you cannot be in relationship with Him, and that says a lot about these leaders of Judaism. So they choose the most politically advantageous answer, right? Not what they really believe. They go, this will get us uh, the least amount of trouble. So we'll just, we'll remain, we'll play, plead the fifth. We don't know. And they look like fools. So Jesus humbles these men in the temple, ultimately showing he is the true authority by their own admission, by their own foolishness, standing in their temple with no answer, fear. Can I just tell us, the problem with playing politics is that sometimes you make decisions based on manipulation and control instead of personal responsibility. Don't play politics with God or his people. <coughs> Respond to the truth of who he is. Respond to the truth of your own sinfulness and brokenness. Let that be your response. So the last verse in the text, Jesus says, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The truth is Jesus had been showing that authority his whole ministry. Jesus had been speaking about the fact that he, he was connected to the Father. He could do nothing apart from his Father. He'd been saying that his whole ministry. I, I like John 10, 17 that says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Why? This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus had all authority. It had been given to him by God. If they had truly wanted to know where his authority had come from, all they had to do was listen. All they had to do was watch and see prophecy after prophecy fulfilled. The lame leaping, the dumb speaking, the very sea falling in peace. All you have to do is pay attention. But don't forget that in this moment, this is not just about them waking up, paying attention. Jesus, you remember what Jesus did as he rode down the mountain and he began to weep? It wasn't just sad for the lostness of Jerusalem. He also did something else. 
he pronounced a judgment on the temple. He pronounced a judgment on Jerusalem, on these leaders. He said, you did not recognize your visitation. You did not know what made for peace. And so now you will not know. This is too late for these men. This is too late. These pronounced a judgment on them, right? It's a sad reality. Aiken says, what was expedient and safe was more important to them than what was true and right. We don't know. Was the lie motivated by fear? They would rather keep their position and live a lie than submit to Christ and walk in the truth. They had never, they had neither sincere motives nor open mind. They had cowardice instead of courage. So I, I've studied this this week and, and prayed over it and thought through it and, and thought through the whole Passion Week and all the things that Jesus has been teaching us and showing us about inauthenticity and even about this lesson that we see Jesus making for us today. So what does it show us? Like, how do we take this text and we apply it to our lives today? What, what do we need to look at and consider today? One of the few things I think you ought to consider, and that is, do we have idols in our lives? The answer is yes. An idol is something you love more than Jesus. An idol is something that's so important to you, it's more important than your relationship with God. So maybe you're chasing money, that becomes an idol instead of trusting that God provides. Maybe your work is so important because you feel powerful, in control, and you begin to manipulate. Instead of being a servant to all, as Jesus has told his disciples to be. Maybe it's a hobby, maybe it's sports, maybe it's this or that. I don't know what is so important to your life that you think about it, maybe you're thinking about it even now. That thing, that very thing, maybe it's a person, could be an idol in your life. We all have idols. In fact, John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. That, that this is something that we create all the time. We, we find idols that we, 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 we believe in more than Jesus. We rest upon more than him. We like our idols. We like our traditions. We like our opinions. And so did the Pharisees. So did these religious leaders. They were interrupted by Jesus. Can I say that? He comes in there, and just like them, we don't like it when God interrupts our lives and reminds us that, no, he is in control, and we should be worshiping him. We want Jesus on our terms, when we need him, when it's important to us, when we lose a family member, oh, we need you, Jesus. When a family member's sick, oh, we need you, Jesus. When we lose a job, oh, Jesus is the most important thing in your life. Well, what about the rest of your life? What about the rest of your days when you begin to rest on other things beyond him? Because, friends, these leaders didn't know God at all and had no concern for God whatsoever. They had lost their fear of God and their, their lives were full of idols and their own religion that they had made and stacked upon God's law. I heard a message by Alistair Begg. I love Alistair Begg. He said, he said, you know, America is really a, a, a nation that's full of uh, polytheism. 
which is when you first hear that, you go, oh, America, no, we're a Christian nation. Maybe you think that. But the reality is polytheism is when you have many gods. And if you think about your own life, that might be true. Because how often we lean on our idols and they become our gods. How often we lean on things that are more important than God. If we bring Jesus in when we want him to, we think we need him. And the truth is he becomes just one of many. God forgive us. If you can't own your mistakes, right? These guys, they couldn't consider that John was from God. That Jesus is Messiah. If you can't own your own mistakes and seek forgiveness from God Almighty, you'll never know him. You must humble yourself. You must seek him. It's the only way to heaven. If your desire for control and manipulation as theirs was, was a desire over the desire for truth, for taking personal responsibility of your life and your sin, you'll never be a disciple of Jesus. Instead, you're worried about everybody else. And some of you this morning may have a fear of people. I've had that fear. So worried about what you think of me. So worried about how I'll be seen. So worried about being taken somewhere or another. Friends, I'm learning to not care as much. God is working in my heart and my life to help me to believe and trust in Him above all things. Where you're not as big an idol as you have been. Don't think of politics with God or His people. I was thinking, aren't my triad? We're going through Revelation. And uh, we went through Revelation 3. Of course, at the end of that chapter is the famous phrase of Jesus to the church of Laodicea, where he says, I, I would rather you not be, I'd rather you be hot or cold, and, and, but because you're lukewarm, you make me want to throw them up. See, to know Jesus is to make a decision. Going to church for a couple hours on a Sunday doesn't make you a Christian. Choosing to follow Jesus with all of your life. Surrendering to his mercy and grace. Saying, Lord, live for me. I want to put on Christ. I want to be yours. I want to live for you. Is knowing him. Don't be lukewarm. Jesus said, be hot or cold. You know, I thought, I thought about this text and I thought about these men who had a chance like Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus in John 3? Nicodemus was seeing things that Jesus was doing and was making him go, maybe he is Messiah. Maybe there's something going on here that I can trust and I can ask. So what does Nicodemus do? He comes to Jesus in the night and he asks him questions and Jesus tells him, you must be born again because God so loves the world that he sent his one and only son, right? He, he tells him this. He had the bravery at least to come to him even though it was in the middle of the night. What about the, the rich young ruler? He was willing to at least come to him during the day. And ask questions. They had a moment where they could receive the grace of God, but there was a time where that grace ended, friends. And the truth that I want you to see, everybody look right here just for a moment. I'm almost done. There is a time where grace runs out. I want you to hear the seriousness of that phrase. I want you to take it seriously. There is a moment where grace runs out. Hebrews 3 says, that we need to consider what we hear. You hear his voice, don't harden your heart. The Bible says, today is the day of salvation. 
there will be a moment where you won't have an opportunity to choose Jesus anymore. These leaders had reached that moment. But today is a day of grace. Today is a day of salvation. Have you been pushing it off? You've been weighing, you've been trying to figure out what's the, what's the consequence of living for Jesus? What's the consequence of making this decision? What's the consequence of selling my life out to knowing him as my savior or just trying to seem like a pretty good person and not really knowing him at all? Today's a day of grace, which means today is a day where you surrender your heart and life to Jesus before it's too late and you have to face the judgment of a holy and righteous God. The beauty of the gospel is that his judgment was supplied to Jesus on a cross so that we don't have to die and go to hell. But if you don't choose Jesus, if you don't trust him, if you don't surrender your life to him, then that judgment will be placed on you. Don't let that happen this morning. Seek him with all of your heart. And I'll close with this. Do you fear being found out? More than not being forgiven. Because if that is the reality of your soul, friend, you really need to repent. You need to, you need to fall before the Lord. That's the truth of what those men should have done. When Jesus said, was, was John's baptism from heaven? They should have realized the truth. They should have heard his words. They should have remembered his miracles and fallen on their face before the holiness of Jesus. And said, from heaven, save me. Because that's who he was. But they were more worried about being found out than being forgiven. They had a fear of men. Instead of a fear of God, what do you fear? Is God the most thing that you fear the most in your life? If he's not, then I just challenge you this morning to repent. And as we close, I'll say this last thing. What I love is that Jesus says this just before he ascends into heaven, Matthew 28, verse 18. You remember the Great Commission, right? When he says, go into all the world. What does he say just before that? He says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus has all authority. Right? Not only to teach, not only to heal, not only to be who he was, but to sit you. He says, I have all authority in heaven and earth, therefore, go. Because of that authority, I now send you. And what I think is so special about today, I mean, you know, we love the Garcias more than we could put into words. Your fingerprints on this place, on these people, is greater than we can say. We love you so much. But we're so grateful for the mercy God, that as the high authority of heaven and earth, he sends you to make disciples. Right? Pedro, we're so grateful for you. And grateful for your season. Pedro, I believe, is a product of Pastor Elvis's ministry in a way. And so it's a special day to celebrate Pedro and his ministry where he lives. And he's, he's doing amazing mission work because Jesus has all authority and has sent Pedro to go and make disciples in all the world into tribes across rivers and rainforests and corrupt governments, he's going and being obedient. 
What are you doing? What am I doing? Am I willing to go across the street? Am I willing to be who Christ has called me to be under his authority, sent by Jesus? Because friends, at the end of the day, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't matter. We've seen that more than anything this week. What matters is knowing Jesus and making him known. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace today. Lord, if there's one person that's here today that doesn't know you as their Savior, God, would you draw them to yourself? Would you move in their heart in such a way that their heart is beating so fast they know they have to make a decision? They know they have to surrender their hearts to you, Lord. As Lord and Master and Savior, not worried about consequences or a certain narrative that will be told, but instead about a life that needs to be rescued by the mercy and grace of Jesus. God, help them to have a fear of a holy God instead of a fear of men. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that you interrupt our lives sometimes to remind us that you are in charge and we need to surrender to that reality. Because there are not many gods, there is only one. You are in full authority of our lives. And so God, as we consider the sinfulness of our hearts, the idol factory that lives within us, God, would you forgive us? Would you give us a soul focus and a heart and love for you? Surrender to you completely. Help us to fall before you. And understanding who you really are. The one true holy authority of heaven and earth. And would you send us out, God? There's a reason we're here. There's a reason we're alive. It's to glorify you and to make you known. So Lord, if there's any area of our lives that are not glorifying you, or where we're not being Obedient to make you known, would you help us to surrender and send us out and make us disciples who make disciples. We love you, Lord. We give you this word this time and we worship you now and surrender to you in Jesus' name. Amen.